Okay, guys, welcome back to the Back Stuff Show. This week on the show, we have James McKinney. He is the founder of Grindology subscription service, and he is a fellow podcaster. He's the host of the Startup Story. Definitely take a listen. We'll give you more details on that at a later date. This guy, first time I met him on the call today, so I'm going to let him introduce himself. So look, James, imagine we're on a first date. Tell me about yourself and where you come from. Uh, imagine we're on a first date. This, you know, I'm like the one who likes to close the deal real early, so this could be interesting. So. Whoa, okay. It's incredibly <laughs> romantic. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, it's, one, thank you for having me. As a podcaster, I know the uh, your space, your listenership is valued to yourself, so I appreciate you giving me that time to kind of share my story. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, that sounds romantic, sounds glamorized, but I'm going to be honest. I'm a serial failed entrepreneur. Um, I've had four failed startups in my past that led me to trying to figure out after the fourth one specifically, I wanted to understand why was I continually failing? I, I, I didn't believe it was me. I didn't believe it was my skill set. Um, you know, but I, but I saw these other successful entrepreneurs in Southern California and I was like, why are, how are they winning? And I'm not. And so I just started asking for coffees and lunches with some incredibly successful people. And they were all gracious. I mean, almost a hundred percent of them were gracious enough to have those coffees or lunches with me. And so I was just unpacking their brain of how they, how they were able to do what they were doing. Why were they winning? What were some of the challenges they experienced? And as I would share these stories with other people around me about, oh, here's what I learned from so-and-so today, and here was this discussion, more people just kept saying, like, like James, you need to, like, record to these things. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll think about that later. Then I started doing these, like, micro-live events, right, where I have these meetups where – um, I have these successful founders like Larry Namer, the founder of E Entertainment Television. Right, here he is in a room with me. He, he and I, we have about 120 entrepreneurs out there with just pizza and beer. One, and I'm unpacking Larry's story about how he went from the sewers of Manhattan to founding uh, E Entertainment Television and selling it for $3 billion. Like it was, it was a surreal experience. And then people yeah. just kept coming to me saying, do you have this in a podcast? Because I'd like to re-listen to this on the drive. And I was like, no, I don't. And, and when you hear things enough, you start to percolate, like maybe there's something there. Like maybe yeah. I should be doing something like this. And so I was consuming podcasts voraciously. Like I had a bunch of shows that were on my favorite, like, like a, a huge one, how I built this with Guy Raz on NPR, right? I mean, a, a big, a big fan of the show. Um, but what frustrated me about it was as a journalist, which is what Guy Raz was and what most of NPR is. As a journalist, there were questions that he wasn't asking because he's not an entrepreneur. He didn't understand the mix and the grind that that, that, that guest went, had to go through to get to where they were today. Yeah, they, they didn't understand the complexities of a bad deal, right? And just like the questions that would be in my brain, I almost like in my car driving to work, just screaming like, "Why didn't you ask this?" And yeah. So, and so at that point, I just I just flipped the switch and said, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a podcast." And, um, and that became the startup story. We launched in January of 2019. Um, it's been an unbelievable, unbelievable ride. Um, we're pre-COVID. We were sitting at about just under 20,000 listeners. So I'd say February, February. Yeah, February, about 20,000 listeners. And at the end of 2019, I started figuring out, like, how do I monetize this? Like, this is great that I have these listeners, but I got to start making some money here. Um and so my thought was, well, hey, this started live events and these micro meetups. Maybe I can do something big scale. So I actually started planning this event called Startup Story Live. And Startup Story Live was um, going to be at the 
you know, here in the U.S., the NFL is a big deal. As I mean, technically, the NFL is big globally, but I know f- soccer or football proper is a bigger deal in the U.K. But here, the Dallas Cowboys are like the biggest team of the NFL. And so they had a uh, facility out here called The Star. We were going to do a live event at The Star. We we're going to have 1,500 entrepreneurs. I had three founders flying in. It was going to be like just a, a an expo, if you will, for startups. We're going to have startup alleys. I mean, just, I mean, real um, in live in person version of the startup story podcast, but as well as some real tactical things for people to get their hands on and understand how, how to, how to build businesses. And so that was, it was amazing. In fact, I remember leading up to it, you know, doing my forecast on what this can mean for the business. I'm like, man, this is like, this is almost a million dollar revenue light item for, for the business in year two of the podcast. I was like, this is unbelievable. And so February comes along I am days away from closing my title sponsor for Startup Story Live. Uh, they wanted to do that event and a subsequent event um, and a couple uh, podcast episodes in between. It was going to be a $200,000 deal um, for that title sponsorship. Days away from closing. And then uh, President Trump comes in and shuts down uh, the government for the month of April. And I was like, oh, no. This is, where it, this is where it unravels. And so, and so obviously lost that deal, lost other, the smaller sponsors that were part of the event. Um, the event, you know, I tried in my head, I tried to be the, you know, the ever uh, ending optimist where it's like, oh, we're just going to delay the event. Like we're just going to push it back. We're not going to shut it down like South by Southwest or Dreamforce of Salesforce, you know, all these big brands that can afford to just cancel. I'm a small business. I can't afford to cancel. We're going to keep delaying. Yeah. And then I realized, wait a second. Like the reality is even if live events came back, there's going to be this skepticism and nervous, uh, energy around going to these big events. No one's going to come. And so at that point, pulled the trigger, canceled it, um, had to pivot to a live stream event. So instead of, um, doing it live, I had a two-day live stream event with 13 incredible founders come on. I mean, Christina Stemble of Farm Girl Flowers, her story is amazing. Um, you know, she goes from zero to 60 million, even in the midst of pandemic, double-digit growth, and venture capital won't put a dollar into her. It's unbelievable, an unbelievable story. Um, we had uh, Jamie Schmidt went from kitchen to acquisition in seven years, sold for hundreds of millions of dollars to Unilever. I mean, just I had 13 amazing founders that just shared their learnings of how they were navigating the pandemic for an audience that streamed to 77 countries. We had a few thousand people. I mean, it was, it was a a great event, but I only made like $3,000. So as opposed to a million dollar line item pivoted to a live stream, only made a couple thousand dollars and all sponsors and advertisers started pulling from the podcast. They were just holding cash close to the vest. Like it was 2020 was a mess of a year for the Startup Story podcast as it relates to revenue. As it relates to audience and listenership and show growth, it was remarkable. Um, come August, I'm sitting at about 75,000 listeners. My audience has tripled because of the pandemic. Like it was, it was nuts, but $0, $0 earned. And so here I am interviewing these amazing founders. You know, I think we had our 100th episode um in december or november i forget when it was we had our 100th episode just recently and you know i'm i'm getting a chance to sit with amazing brain i mean ben chestnut of mailchimp was a guest on my show and i got to sit with him and learn from him i mean i mean he is and what's interesting about that i don't want to i don't want to glance over ben chestnut because i think he's a story that doesn't get told enough or as a human being doesn't get the headlines that he truly deserves 
I just said Ben Chestnut Mailchimp right there, and you're like, what a hero. I can't tell you how many founders I have mentioned his name to, and all of them just have incredible admiration for him. But if you Google him, there's not a news article about him. There's not a headline about him. I mean, Matt. he is so subtle. But he, he bootstrapped Mailchimp to a $5 billion valuation. Bootstrapped, rejected venture capital when they came following after Constant Contact went public. An amazing story. And when you hear his story... His, his entire core, his ethos is, I want to help small businesses. I mean, I get goosebumps just talking about him again. Like, yeah. I'm, such, I'm such a fanboy for him. Like, he is so incredible. And he just, when people think of entrepreneurship, they think of the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, um, the Jeff Bezos. And those are all incredible entrepreneurs. But they never mention Ben Chestnut. And I, I fully believe Ben Chestnut deserves to be on that Mount Rushmore of entrepreneurs. The things that he has done is unbelievable to me. Um, and the businesses and the businesses that he has um, helped grow because of what he has developed. Yeah. Game changer, right? I mean, part of what makes Amazon so great in my mind is not necessarily the Amazon platform. It's the entire infrastructure to help other brands and businesses sell. And most people don't talk about those things. The whole FBA business is unbelievable. There are trade shows that are specific for Amazon resellers. Like it is an entire economy to Amazon that most people have no idea about. And for me, that's the stuff that's impressive because it changes lives. Like, yeah, I, the fact that I can get my my uh, my toilet paper in two days is off, is often convenient. But man, the economy behind it for small businesses is game changer. That's why I love Ben Chestnut. But nevertheless, I get to sit with these amazing founders and hear their story. And I'm, here I am struggling trying to figure out how I monetize my podcast. What am I missing? And so, you know, one of the things that I believe is that, you know, and I say it in every show, like uh, entrepreneurs want to support other entrepreneurs. And so I just reached out to some of those past guests and said, hey, you know, we haven't made a dollar in a few months. I'm just trying to figure out what am I missing here? How can I monetize? What, what is, you know, what is something I can move on? And again, back to how Startup Story um, started. Almost 100% of those past founder guests said, yeah, let's, let's connect for a call. And so now I'm having these founders mentor me directly to help me understand, like, here's the things you need to think of when it comes to monetizing your brand, the startup story. And the common thread in all of that was you have to figure out a way to monetize your audience outside of sponsorships and advertisers. You should not be brokering the access and brand equity of startup story. You need to somehow figure out how to leverage that directly. And so I started thinking to myself, like, man, how do I do that? Because so many podcasters, just a money grab when they start doing this stuff. Like, I don't, like, what am I just, you know, sell cheap t-shirts? And like, like what am I going to do here? And so I started brainstorming around it. Met, had a chance to sit with uh, Matthew Arvalo, co-founder of Loot Crate. For those that don't know his story, Loot Crate, he helped build to $100 million in three years. In their high water mark, they were shipping close to half a million boxes a month. I mean, just, and again, for those who know what Loot Crate is, the easiest way I can explain it would be Comic-Con in a box. Like it's just a bunch of a nerd swag, collectibles, and tchotchkes that they would ship every month um, based on certain themes. But they were doing half a million boxes a month in their high watermark. And so I sat with him and he's like, you know, like James, like you need to figure out what entrepreneurs, like what they, what they live for, what is, the, what is the nectar of their being, and you need to figure out something that makes sense. And, and he's like, coffee, James. He's like, Every single entrepreneur drinks coffee. And if they don't drink coffee, I don't trust them. I don't trust them anyways. And so yeah, don't. Like, they're <laughs> not real people. They're, they're not real people. They're superhuman and are not even humans at all. And so, 
And so I'm like, coffee, that's interesting. So I started understanding the coffee process a bit more and had a friend of mine who was one of the co-founders of Treyarch Studios who created Call of Duty. He was actually the lead designer around Call of Duty and just a UX genius. I mean, just when it comes to the user experience and, and branding, he's, a, he's unbelievable. And so I started talking with him like, hey, his name's Christian. I'm like, Christian, what, what does this look like if I were to go into this? And, um, and he's like, oh, James, like coffee, startup story, unpacking the entrepreneurial journey, the study of entrepreneurship, study of the grind, grindology. And I was like, oh, dude, like this is money right here. Right and he's like, and he's like, he's like, let me run with the branding for a little bit. Let me see what I can come up with. And so he comes up with grindology. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. So first version of grindology was going to be a quarterly box where you get coffee. And coffee that's customly curated for entrepreneurs, you know, high caffeine, low acid, something that we can drink all day that isn't going to disrupt our day. Because I don't, you know, coffee what is that? Can I just dig into that really quickly? Yeah, yeah as, as a coffee yeah. drinker. Right. So, why, why does it matter? Why do I want low acid, high? Obviously, I can get the high caffeine, but what does, what's the effect of having high acid on my body? So, so everyone, everyone's affected by coffee differently, right? So, if, if you have, um, for those like, you know, heartburn or, or acid reflux, like sometimes that has to do with the ability for how your stomach processes its own natural acids. Right. And if you add coffee to it, which tends to have a pretty high acidic rate to it based on how it's roasted, um, that adds to that, right? So most people, if they stop at a cup a day, it tends to be because of how it affects them and they just haven't processed. Well, what is it about it that affects me? It's not the jitters. Most people don't stop because of the jitters. It tends to be because of the acid. And if, you know, some people, you know, when they lay down at night, it's that acid, they have acid reflux or heartburn because of it. It affects everyone differently. But by having a low acid uh, content coffee, even for those who don't, aren't affected by it, they'll notice a difference because the acid is not affecting their esophagus, their heartburn. There's, 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 no, um, there's no bloat to it. Like it really does uh, have a physiological impact to you, whether you are aware of it or not. For those who have um, heartburn and acid reflux, like they'll, they'll notice it immediately because it's because of the low acid content. But from a, for those who don't, like it's a it's a non-issue. Cool. Now here's what I here's what I say about the high caffeine. Right, you get it, you understand the high caffeine. But for those who have tried high caffeine coffee, like for example, Death Wish Coffee is a is a brand that boasts that brags about being the the strongest coffee on the planet. I mean, it's called Death Wish Coffee for crying out loud, and so yeah, sounds um, legit. Yeah, but when you have it, it's it, it tastes like you're drinking coffee out of an ashtray. Like caffeine, you can you can increase caffeine content in coffee through uh, concentrated caffeine. It's super toxic from a from a manufacturing perspective, uh, but it can be done. You can just add it to coffee uh, to the roasting the the drying process. You can add it to the manufacturing process to get higher caffeine but it drastically diminishes the flavor of the coffee. You're not really tasting the bean anymore. And right. so we found out through talking with some, some uh, roasters that you can actually elevate the caffeine content simply by taking the roasting process to be a bit longer. So it's a slower roasted bean. It's still a dark roast, so it, it, it takes it all the way to the end of that roasting profile, but it's a slower roast, which means you get less uh, per hour from a manufacturing perspective but it extracts the natural caffeines in the cocoa bean. And so it's a natural high caffeine blend. So our, our afterburner, which is our, our 2X caffeine, is a natural caffeine. There's no caffeine added to the bean or to the, the manufacturing process. The manufacturing process itself extracts the extra caffeine out of the cocoa bean. Amazing. Um, 
And again, I want to be very clear, like for those who are coffee snobs, coffee aficionados, those that only live on the French pour, like you may drink the Grindology coffee and be like, okay, it's good coffee, but whatever. Um, but here's what makes Grindology different. So as I'm talking with um, my buddy Christian, the, the Call of Duty UX designer, and my friend uh, from Luke Cape, Matthew Ovalli, I'm talking with them. I'm like, yeah, but for entrepreneurs, it's got to be more than that. The startup story is about stories, about tactics and strategies. Like I'm, I'm sitting with these amazing founders, and I'm trying to deliver key takeaways for each founder guest that my audience can take and run with. And um, my immediate version, because, again, I'm not a genius by any means. I'm like, oh, great. I'll just reach out to all these brands that want to reach out to entrepreneurs, and we'll just have a box of swag and, 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 and free giveaways and all kinds of things that these brands want to contribute to the box. It'd be great. And Matthew Arvalo from Loot Crate says, James, that is a horrible idea. <laughs> He's like, think about this for a second. You're a founder. You've been making decisions all day long. You're probably stressed over cash flow and payroll. You're not sure how you're going to be able to make payroll coming up. The last thing you want is a box full of junk that you now have to organize and make sense of. Like you're giving me another decision. He's like, you need to give me something that's going to help my business. The moment, the moment your box arrives, I need to know that there is relief in there. I know we got good coffee. I need to know there's something that's going to help me. I'm like, dang. He's like, he looks at me, he looks at us via Zoom. He looks me in the eye and goes, you need, to, you need to make a magazine. And I'm like, what? He's like, think about it, James. Like, you're already sitting with these amazing founders in the podcast. Now take these contents, this, uh, these tactics and strategies that are coming in audio form, bring them into written form, have a magazine, almost like a tactical manual where someone could, an entrepreneur can take that magazine or manual, sit it on their desk and just walk through funnel strategies, walk through Facebook strategies, walk through how Trainual, a SaaS solution that, that is one of the fastest growing SaaS solutions out there, how they got their first thousand customers, like real things that entrepreneurs can, can take and put into their business. And I looked at, I looked at back at him. I said, you know what? I'll even do better than that. I said, every piece of content in there will be from the founders themselves. They're going to write it. I'm not going to have a single journalist contribute to this. This is going to be 100% founder direct tactics. And he, and he said, that's it, James. That's Grandology right there. So now Grandology shipping this month is a quarterly subscription that includes two custom roasted bags of coffee and the Grandology magazine that is chock full of founder direct tactics. Every piece of content in there is from a founder who's built their business that want to share with you what you've learned, what they've learned in their business so that you can accelerate and learn from their learnings. It is unbelievable. Like, I, like when I stepped into this, I thought making a magazine, this is crazy. Like, that's not what I do. I'm a podcaster. I'm a, I'm a software, uh, uh, startup founder. Like I, I'm a, I'm a print broker. Like I'm going back through all the things in my life that I've done that have failed. I'm like, these are the things that I am. I'm not a magazine publisher, but when I realized all I'm doing with the magazine is the one thing that I've done my entire life and that's connect people with other people. So Grindology Magazine is just my way of connecting you directly with a founder to learn how they did one key thing really well based on the theme of that magazine. So our first issue is about growth. Everything in that issue is about brand growth. It's about sales growth, lead generation growth. Everything in there is about growth. And we'll, when it comes to Q2, I'll figure out what that theme is later. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. We're gonna, we'll learn as we go. <laughs> I respect that. Where do people sign up, man? Where do they do it? Grandology.com. It's live now. You know, and right. you know, I would, I would. Right now, we're in the U.S. only. Um, I my podcast is actually U.S., U.K., and Australia are my three biggest markets. Um, so I, I'm trying to figure out 
a way to get to those markets um, because of where my listeners are. Um, but at the same time, if there's anything I've learned from all the many people I've talked with is like, you can't, you cannot tackle the hill from the top. You've got to start at the bottom. So let me prove things out here in the States. Let me, let me, let me, uh, figure out things here in the States and then I can figure out logistics to get to the UK next. Well, I've got an office in New York, so I'll sign some peeps up. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So what a story, Jay. What a story. Um, I keep calling you Jimmy. It's such a natural thing for me. Anyone who's called Jay, I always call them Jimmy. Family and friends call me Jimmy, so I'm totally fine with that. Okay, right. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favorite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalog of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. All right. So look, you said a lot of things that I really want to dig into. Like, but so I'm just going to run through them if that's okay. I mean, squirreling them away in my mind, these questions. Okay. You said that you had four failed startups. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Talk me through that. What does that mean when you say they failed? So because you've got like, um, anyone who listens to the show knows that I am a disgusting optimist. Um, and, uh, <laughs> As am I. <laughs> yeah, I say, look, you win or you learn. Um, and you say you failed. Like for me, you didn't fail from the outside. You can't fail at a startup. All you can do is just pivot to something completely new. Um, but yeah. like, what did you so tell me? Like when you say failure, what happened? What went, not went wrong. First of all, why didn't they continue? Let's say that. Why didn't yeah. those businesses continue? So I'm going to, I'm going to talk to what I call my marquee failure, right? It's the one that really kind of changed the trajectory of my entire life. Um, and really I thought I was an optimist before this failure coming out of that failure. I realized that I was an optimist, but now I am an infinite optimist. Um, and, and, and I share, I share this story in great detail in episode 50 of my podcast, cause that's my story. Um, and so maybe I can provide you a link and you include it in your show notes so people can get access to it. Cause it is, it, it'll, I won't go into granular detail here as I will there, but in, in 2009, um, I lost everything in the span of 30 days. Um, and so it really unraveled. What that business was is it was a print and, pro, pr print and promotional product brokerage. So brands would need printing done or promotional product, swag, tchotchkes, things like that. And I would find a source for it, add a markup to it, resell it. That, that was my business. Um, I was a one-man person, one-man office. And so what I learned very – what I have always been good at, and I, get, I attribute to my dad, is I'm always looking for the big deal. You know, I was raised with the same, it, it doesn't take hardly any more effort to get a $100,000 deal than it does a $10,000 deal. And so I'm always looking for that $100,000 deal. And so I ended up um, learning how to sell to the government. Um, and I navigated that process. So now I'm doing $100,000 deals in the promotional product space when most deals in promotional product space were $1,000. So I'm doing 100 times the average invoice because I'm selling to a client who has massive pockets, specifically the U.S. Army. And so I'm selling to the U.S. Army. Here, here's, a, here's a U.S. Army story uh, from, a, from a procurement standpoint. And, and again, if you have anybody in the U.S. that listens, I can walk them through how, how to sell to the government because um, there's some nuances to it. But um, in the government, if you have a contract, it's all about low bid wins. So you submit your proposal. It's all about the bottom dollar, right? So I, I won a proposal that had 5% margin on it. Not a lot. It was like a, it was only like a $70,000 deal, I think at the time. And, um, but then once you have the contract, 
If they if they change anything, hey, we needed a day earlier. Hey, we needed a day later. Hey, can you put this? Can you print on this side of the product as well? Whatever the case may be, you can charge whatever you want because they can't change the contract now. They, I'm sorry, they can't cancel the contract based on their change request. And so what ended up being a 5% margin deal ended up being a 75% margin deal Whoa! because, because they needed it one day early. Hello. One day early. So, Say that. Um, yeah, so, so that, that was the beauty of government, and that's why I loved selling to them. But here's where it went south. In uh, 2009, in the U.S., um, I mean, actually, globally, the financial markets were melting down. Um, but in the U.S., there was this um, act that was a federal stimulus package that everyone thought there was this new money. It was like a $2 trillion act that the government was putting money into the economy to keep it stimulated, and it was going to be incredible. Well, I had just won uh, participation in a $100 million contract with Los Angeles County in Southern California. I was one of 10 people that got to participate in this. And what that meant was basically a blank check. If LA County needed something, I was one of 10 people that they could come to for easy procurement. And if anyone knows anything about government employees, they want the easiest way possible. So really it was like an ATM machine to just kind of like anything I wanted from a purchase order perspective. So I had a $600,000, I'm sorry, $700,000 order for imprinted USB drives. This was in 2009 at the time. So USBs were a big deal back then for cloud storage. And so I had a $700,000 deal. And um, I had, was buying them out of China. You know, my profit margin was going to be 50% on this whole thing. So I was going to make 350 grand on this project. Sweet. So I, set, I send um, 50% deposit to China, right? Great. Now it's time to ship. I send the remaining 50%. So I was young. I didn't think of all, I didn't know all the different um, lending vehicles that were out there, all the different procurement processes that could have hedged my bet. I was just, to me, it was a cash deal. As I pay 50% to get in production, pay 50% to get it on the ship. So the moment it gets on the ship, two days later, it's seven days across uh, the ocean to get to the LA port. A few days later, once it's on the boat, I get a letter from LA County that is a cancellation order. And in government, they can cancel without cause. And so I got that letter and I have never felt more sick in my entire life because in order to get that cash to fund that deal, I had refinanced the house without my wife knowing. I had leveraged all my credit cards. I had emptied my 401k. I did everything I could to bring that cash to fruition because I knew I was doubling my money in a 90 day period. And then I get that cancellation order and I, I'm be honest, like I have never once in a million years ever thought about suicide, but I can see how people get there. There was no hope, man. There was no hope. So I sat on that um, for for days trying to figure out how do I explain this to my wife? And so um, and so finally I get the courage to to sit down with her and explain it to her. And I thought for sure she was gonna leave me. I mean, we were losing that. We were at that point we were gonna lose the house. I had, I had nothing. I had zero cash. I had no deals in the pipeline. Um, you know, mainly because government contracts take a while to, to work through. And so I had nothing in the pipeline. Um, I thought we were done. And so I share with her everything and, and her response changed my life, which is why I'm, I'm a, I don't think I truly knew what optimist was until 
Um, now I'm a fearless optimist, but her first words when I told her everything that I lost it all, all the things I did without telling her all the things she looked at me and said, okay, I trust you now. What? And I was like, Oh dang. Like, Oh, I'm not oh. going to lose you. I'm not going to lose you. Oh, I'm, you're not taking the kids and leaving. Oh, this isn't like, what do I do now? And my response was, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. Because in that moment I realized that I wasn't, I, she wasn't going to let me play victim. She was, she was holding me up to say, okay, great. I trust you. Now go solve this. You've done this. Now solve it. And it's like, oh, okay, great. My biggest fear of losing you is no longer an issue. Now I've got to turn into warrior mode and figure out how to solve this. And so, um, so when, I, when I talk of failures, uh, you know, that is my marquee failure. That is the one that changed the game. You know, my, the, one, the, the, the failure that followed that was simply a, a technology startup that I raised some, some seed capital for. Um, couldn't really get any traction with it, and so we just shuttered it. I mean, it was a, it was a turn the servers off, you know, send an email to the, the investors apologizing for not being able to execute this, explain some of the market conditions that didn't do it. You know, it was, it was a business transaction, but that failure, that failure was a personal transaction. And so that one, that one really kind of cut deep and really changed going forward, how I view being a founder who is married, not a founder who happens to be married. Like they were compartmentalizing to that point. Right. And I think a lot of founders, I think a lot of founders do that. And so um, that changed the game for me. So when I lost everything in 2009, took me a couple of years to lick my wounds and get back in the saddle again. And uh, then I came back with a technology startup um, and then worked on that for two years, didn't do anything. And that's when closing that startup, the technology startup, that's when I went on this quest to understand why was I continuing, continuing to not able to execute to build something that could actually do something. Right. And so yeah. that's what and that led me to where I am today. So to your point about there's no failures, there's only learnings, you know, in the midst of it, it sure feels like a failure. Absolutely. But if you if you're able to pause and be present in the moment, there are absolutely learnings in that season. Um, I find that most people, they need that time to kind of lick their wounds a bit and then able to reflect back on that season to understand what those learnings are. Um, it's hard to process it in the moment because you really are depending on the degree of it you're scrambling like you're, you're, you're trying to, you don't know how to navigate those waters. Um, if you have employees, you're letting go, it's you're, you're sick to your stomach because of the impact your decisions had on their life. I mean, uh, you know, I've interviewed a few founders there. In fact, uh, Chris Brownridge, um, was a guest on the show and I interviewed him 45 days after he shuttered his business after raising four and a half million dollars, um, in an industry that, seemed like it it was going to be a massive success um and we we unpack his learnings you can just hear how raw it is in that conversation because that's the stuff people don't talk about they don't talk about how hard it is navigating that failure but there's like to your point and i'll keep going back to your point like there are so many learnings but it's just it's it's hard to get to a point where you can reflect on those learnings. james a massive respect for you there i mean that sounds like an apps like the the calamity of calamities it sounds like yes. the hardest thing to go through yeah. the, the resilience you've built off the back of that is it's this inspirational what an amazing thing to this so i have huge respect for you there the um and it's harder because like when you're at the helm of the ship people don't realize like 
that shit's on you, right? You know, yes. that's something you've yes. got to take. Like, you know, yes, you have micro circumstances, which, you know, you think, oh, was it's not about fault. The fact is you're there, so you're responsible. Um, and I respect you greatly for being able to recover from that. I think also there's something about a founder, which I always you talk about a lot and openly, is that as a founder, all you really are is a problem solver. That's all you yeah. are. Like, yes. you know, you something yes. comes to you. It's a situation. You're either solving a problem to make a product, which is going to make lots of money. And as soon as you start doing it, everyone in your team, no one comes to you and says, hey, I've got this great idea. This is a really amazing thing. That's not what happens in a startup. What actually happens is they say, <laughs> can I have some money? This guy's yes. being a dick. Um, you know, like I can't believe I can't believe things aren't working in product, and then and then product like I can't believe the marketing they're not getting me enough people. Whatever, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like it's yeah. just problems. And so your yeah. ability as a founder is your resilience and your ability to deal with those problems. Yeah, yeah and I respect you for being able to deal with that. And I'm, I'm fantastic. And obviously, you know, you're you know, you're an incredibly successful person, so it doesn't surprise me. So we've got 18 minutes left here, but I said one thing that you said there that absolutely blew my mind. Okay. Now, look, I run a podcast, which you're on right now. I have people on the show who listen to podcasts. And what I think about podcasts, which I think is fascinating um, when I talk to people, is it is a micro business. It's a, it's a yeah. really interesting, I think it's a really good thought experiment to say, okay, I have a product, which is maybe my personality or my opinion, or I have a niche, which is I have a problem that I'm solving. That's my product. And I have to now go and get people to be interested in my products. Okay. Yeah. And that's what it is. That's what the listener is. And then you take further monetization and so forth. You said that you went, you started in 2019 and you got to 75,000 listeners. Yeah. There are a lot of people listening to this thinking, holy sugar, <laughs> what is, give me three tips, big man. Like, how did you manage that? All right, so um, so yeah, seventy five thousand in August. I'm now at eighty five thousand. Just Woo, okay, fine. Sorry, I absolutely no, no, understand no, no, you. I, I just I just wanted to bring the transparency to it. That was not that was not a flex in any way. I promise. It's a good one though. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll tell you a couple things that got me there. Um, first and foremost, uh, it was not my intent. I did not intend on this being something huge. I went into this simply because those around me were saying, like, dude, if you had this in audio form, I'd listen to it. Yeah, you know, and so it really was still about me wanting to sit with these amazing founders. And again, the roster is just so rich. The roster is incredible of people I've had on the show, and it's really been fortunate for me. Like you know, early on, it was about you know who do I want to talk to, and now it's at the point where it's like, well, who do I think can deliver amazing value to the audience? So, so first and foremost, um, not that it was a success metric, but I want everyone to know, like, I didn't go into this thinking it was going to be something significant in any way shape or form um but what i what i also knew too is that as a founder there are stories that we just don't tell in a public forum because of our ego like there's there's things that we just we hold cautiously and i think a lot of people jump into entrepreneurship based on the headlines that they read that it's a it's like you know if you build it they will come if you just you grind it out and get some venture capital. It's a massive success automatically. And, and those who have done this know that's a bunch of BS. Like we know that's just not true, but we live in a world that has so many platforms and um, tools and resources that anybody can jump into entrepreneurship and try to build their own thing. And then when it becomes hard, they're like, what do I do? Like, Oh, I'm just going to quit. And it's like, well, you don't need to quit. You just had a false idea of what this was. So, um, as I was telling these stories, here's the first thing that really boosted. And I'm going to be honest. Um, 
I thought the whole influencer thing was was garbage. Like I thought like influencers don't have like that much pull and you know and, and maybe when it comes to e-commerce they might have something but not in the podcast world. So within the first few weeks of the launching of the show I get hit up by a publicist. And a publicist is pitching her homeschool client. And I'm like, homeschool? Like, did you not hear who I've had on the show? I had I had Larry Namer of E Entertainment Television, Jason McCann of Veridesk, like, and you're pitching me a homeschool person. And so but I stopped for a second. I'm like, why would a homeschool person have a publicist? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So I inquired, what's the what's the angle? And she was a homeschool person for celebrities. She had Dr. Dre. She had um, the Kardashians, and she lists on a roster of other people. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So, so I did the interview because I was, I was fascinated. I personally was fascinated. I didn't think there would be much of a story for the audience, but I was personally fascinated by this. So we did our show. And then out of nowhere, um, I'm watching the downloads just go bananas. Well, what had happened was Kylie Jenner gave 10 swipe ups in her story for the episode because she was a student of this person. And I was like, get out of town, right? So, so, all this, so all of a sudden, I'm seeing the impact of influencers. Um, now, I also knew that they weren't going to stick around because in my mind, the people that, that care about Kylie Jenner are not people that care about building businesses. But what I didn't realize was I had completely neglected the business students. I had completely neglected the college students who wanted to build a business and were trying to think through entrepreneurs and they were looking at brands like Kylie Jenner as an influence to them on how to build brands. And then, so it, it opened up a persona for me that I had no idea about until Kylie Jenner gave me a swipe up. So, um, no needless to say of those that she, um, that she drove to the show, I would say 30% stuck around and it created a new baseline of listenership that continued um, the rest of the growth, I truly do attribute to just founders uh, sharing their story. Because when you listen to, much like your show, um, as you know, I'm excited to hear my episode of your show because I know you create something that the founder is proud of to share. Like if there's something about the rawness and vulnerability of me sharing with you that I'm excited to share with others because I want people to hear it. The same thing goes true for any of my founders, even Ben Chestnut. He heard his story in a new way that he hadn't heard in a long time because I start in the childhood years on my show, you know, and most founders are never talking about their childhood because it's too vulnerable. It's too, it's too open. And so having founders share their story because they're excited to share something about themselves that they never shared before, that was a key to growth. The other thing too is um, just little tiny little hacks. Like I tell people, if you want to advertise in the show, leave me an iTunes review. Leave me an iTunes review and plug your brand, social media, or, or URL in there. And I'm going to read it in an episode, and that becomes like an advertisement. I've had people tell me, like, hey, I left you a review. You read it in an episode, and I had two transactions on my website. I'm like, that's awesome. That's exactly why I do it. It's like, a win. I, I'm yeah. here to support you. Right? It's not, it's not, it's not a, a huge win to me. It's a huge win to them, though. You know. And so, like, I mean, it's everything I do is centered on the premise that entrepreneurs support other entrepreneurs. And so – Every angle of the show, the way I talk to the founders, the way I pursue which founders I have to bring to my audience, the way I, I, I speak in my show, the way I want to deliver a chance for the small businesses that I'm probably not going to ever interview on the show to give them a, a face in the show through those little tiny ads. Like, it's like I'm always about trying to support. And so, you know, I will say I do attribute that consistency of on brand messaging to be critical. 
people know when they listen to the startup story, they know exactly how the format's going to be from beginning to end. They know exactly the caliber of people that are going to come on the show now because they've seen it episode after episode after episode. They know I'm going to unpack one massive takeaway for what makes that person an expert. Like I had Dylan Jacob of Brewmate. I mean, he built Brewmate to be a $75 million company in two years. You know, and a consumer product. We talk about how did he how did he build a consumer product that was made in China? How did he navigate that the the COVID world? And he talks about how he chartered three private freight planes to bring his product from China to here because they had no other means to do so. And so lot. it was awesome. It was awesome. So so I would say on brand messaging, ensuring that you're serving the audience above all things at all times, and then two, not main ma- making sure you're not tone deaf to what is taking place. There was a season in the U S where there was a lot of, uh, social injustice protests. There were a lot of things that were taking place here in the U S that was just an absolute mess. And so I could look at that and think, well, that's not really pertinent to entrepreneurship. I'm going to ignore it and not address it. But the reality is my, my listeners who are entrepreneurs, like if, if they were a black founder, then that stuff is certainly interest uh, of interest to them. And so I, I, I became aware that when I looked at my roster, like I didn't have, I didn't have a solid representation of black founders on my show. And yet here I am saying I'm about entrepreneurs supporting other entrepreneurs. So why don't I have black founder representation on my show? So that, that opened my eyes to elevate my outreach to, to try and get more black founders on the show. Um, And so I think a lot of, again, there is no formula to the growth of it. Um, You know, people will hit you up saying, Hey, I can provide 200,000 downloads. Those are all bots. You're not going to grow. Um, but it really is just about authenticity and transparency. I mean, and, you know, the more you, the more a podcaster tries to serve their audience, not just create content for the sake of creating content, but truly come from a position of serving the audience, the audience is going to grow because they, they see something different. No, I respect that. That's really good advice. All right. Final bit of the show. Okay. Two questions. First one. Okay. Quick fire. What is your single piece of advice with your encyclopedic knowledge of startups and experiences? What is the one piece of advice you'd give to every single founder? You need to stop believing the headlines and start listening to the real conversations. Entrepreneurship is not easy. The headlines will have you thinking it is a get quick rich type of scenario. They will, they will get you believing that venture capital is the only way to grow your business. I can point to so many stories that are contrary to all those things. You need to understand if it's on the headline, it's the headline because it sells that publication. That's why it's the headline. That does not make it the norm. And so as an entrepreneur, you need to understand you are venturing into something that is the hardest thing you will ever do. There are infinitely easier ways to make money and earn a living. There are infinitely easier ways to become tremendously wealthy. Entrepreneurship is not it. So if you are venturing in entrepreneurship, you need to understand fully how complex this is, how challenging this is. And to your point earlier, which was just so beautifully stated, being an entrepreneur means you are just, you are jumping into a, I'm using air quotes here, a career of problem solving. COVID sucked for everybody. I mean, hands down, but as an entrepreneur, it was another problem you had to solve. And, and, you know, for many businesses, it, it wrecked them, you know, and for other businesses, they thrived. I mean, I have, I have episodes of both caliber. Um, for me, it was just, it was a 10 month, 10 month of just tremendous problem solving that I could have never imagined in a million years. You know, so if there's anything I can leave people with, understand this is not fast. Don't listen to the headlines. 
listen to the conversations from real founders who are giving you real tactics. Respect that a lot. It's a really good piece of advice. Okay, um, since lockdown, um, I've become obsessed with life and biohacks and productivity hacks because obviously it's really hard when you're working yes. remote or I call it WFA rather than um, work from anywhere rather than work from <laughs> home. Um, but uh, yeah, I say so. You know, I've become obsessed. I'm I'm really getting into this this world of how can I make my team more productive? How can I make my body better? You know, make myself healthier and life hacks and so forth. But if you speak to founders, they've always got a hack. They've always got something. My um my controversial startup hack is get a virtual assistant. Uh, so you know, concentrate on the things that you are here for, what you're good at, not things yeah. that just take up time. Um, uh, so tell me, what is one of what is your was the James McKinney startup hack. So first and foremost, I am not a doctor, but I'll tell you what this hack is. I believe that our bodies have a natural rhythm for sleep. I truly believe that it, there's a certain window of time where we will be able to find deep sleep and come out of that sleep relatively easily. And I, I say this from a few different things. You hear Everyone talks about Tony Robbins, who's able to sleep for like three hours a day and, and, and still be able to maintain a high level of energy that he does. Um, I have tested so many different windows of time to sleep, right? Sometimes I'll go to sleep at 10 o'clock at night because I feel like my body just needs it. Um, and then I'll wake up at, you know, 5 a.m. or whatever. And I'm just, I'm, I'm dragging ass. Like it's just, it, it's not that, that those seven hours didn't truly refresh me. Um, what I've learned is that my body needs five hours. My personal body needs five hours. But it's not just the five hours. It's when are those five hours? Again, if I go from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., that is not refreshing. That does not help. And so when I, when I, if I hit fatigue at 10, I try to muscle it through to midnight because my window is midnight to 5. And, I, and, I, and I've, I've tested this with my wife as well, and the same is true for her. She has a different window, but it's a window. Now, again, I don't always abide by that window. Like, I mean, there are times where – you know, it's either I'm up much later or I'm crashing earlier because I just, I, I don't want to try to muscle it through to midnight or I'm sleeping in longer or it's a weekend or whatever the case may be, or I want to have the same window as my wife, whatever the case may be. But I would, I would challenge everyone listening to test this theory of different sleep windows to see if you can find your window. You may say to your head, well, oh man, I remember this time I fell, I was asleep for only six hours and I was so refreshed. It's not just the hours. It's the window in which you sleep because your body has a pattern. It has a, it has a, a hunger pattern. It has an alertness pattern. Your body is a, has inherent patterns and sleep is one of them. We just tend to think, oh, I'm tired now. Therefore, I need a full amount of sleep. I had a, I had a, a business partner back in the day. His thing was in the middle of the day, he knew he just needed to like just crash. And so he would just take a quick power nap, 10 10, 20 minutes, and he was he was recharged the rest of the day. And then his whatever his sleep pattern was at night. But I thought to myself, like, that's interesting, because that got me through college. That got me through university. I'd get off work, go to go to college in the parking lot, take a power nap for 20 minutes. I was good to go for the whole rest of the night until 1 a.m. Right? I mean, I was I was I was locked and loaded because I, I I hacked my my sleep pattern. So I would challenge all your listeners, think through the times you've been most refreshed and don't just assume it's the number of hours. Think through the pattern of when you operate best. 
I love that. I'm really into it. I am. Uh, but as someone who has uh, kids, the concept of sleep is completely alien to me. <laughs> so I've got no idea what you're talking about. This whole thing was just over my head. Well, I have, I have, t- I have teenagers, so I can tell you there's hope at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll see. All right. Okay, look. James, you've been great. Really have. I really, I've really enjoyed this discussion. I've learned a lot. I think you know the, the things you've said about how you learned from your past experiences, the struggle you've been through, the way that you've evolved and turned this into this, this, this empire of podcasting, which you're now turning into this service and connecting your people together and creating well an amazing coffee brand, which I'm super into. So uh, some of my colleagues, well, do you work for me in New York? Are definitely going to get a taste of that. It's great. Awesome. Uh, where can people find you? Where can they find out about Grindology and Startup Story? Uh, first on LinkedIn, if you search for uh, James McKinney, you'll find me. Uh, I'll be one of the first ones you pull up. I love connecting with anybody and everybody, um, both online and and if um, if I can be of service, I'll connect with you offline. Um, if you do, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, tell me something about this episode. Something about about listening to uh, the Back Yourself show that you love so much. Don't just come at me saying, "Hey, I heard your episode. I want to sell you something." I'm not interested in that. I want to hear about how how listening to the Back Yourself show has changed your life and improved your business. Um, also, two, you know, Startup Story podcasts on all major platforms, and then visit Grandology.com. While you may not be in the states, I'm sure you have a network of those in the states. You know, I believe entrepreneurs support entrepreneurs. So if you can help me build a Grandology, that'd be greatly appreciated. Fantastic. All right, buddy. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, my absolute pleasure.